Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Monday, May the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It has been a lively few days in British politics with the results of last week's parliamentary and assembly votes in Scotland and Wales, along with local elections across much of England and an important by-election in the former Labour stronghold of Hartlepool. The ripples have been felt uh, most strongly, I think, in the Labour Party, whose leader, Keir Starmer, announced a front bench reshuffle last night following a turbulent weekend of recriminations and accusations over the party's poor showing in some key areas. I'm joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, we're going to come in a little while to the results which may prove the most consequential in the long term, which are the Scottish parliamentary election. But maybe you could take us through first what's been happening in England. Well, uh, in England, uh, generally speaking, uh, as in all of the three countries in Britain, the incumbent party did well. So the Conservatives did well in England. They gained uh, council seats and they won uh, by-election in Hartlepool, a seat that had been held at Westminster for by Labour for more than uh, 40 years, almost half a century. And, uh, and so uh, this led to a kind of an immediate meltdown within the leadership of the Labour Party. And so this result came out on Friday morning. And other results that came later over the weekend were a bit better for Labour. They held on to their big mayoralties in London and in Manchester, and they also gained a mayoralty in the west of England. And there were also some gains in the south of England in places like Chipping Norton and Whitney, sort of headquarters of David Cameron, where they went from the Conservatives to Labour. But before all of this happened, on Saturday, uh, Keir Starmer uh, met the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner, who had been the party chairman and national campaign director. And like him, she's elected by the membership. So she's unsackable as deputy leader. But he told her that she, he was going to sack her as party chair and as campaign director. And he wanted to give her a, a different shadow cabinet position. So she immediately uh, appears to have felt she was being made the scapegoat for this set of elections, which were controlled in terms of a lot of the decisions by Keir Starmer and his office. And so her people started to brief out the fact that uh, he was uh, sacking her. And then there was briefings and counter-briefings. There were briefings on uh, throughout Saturday evening suggesting that there were various other prominent members of the Labour front bench, like the foreign affairs spokeswoman Lisa Nandy, who had also been a candidate for the leadership, that she she was going to be demoted. And so this, uh, you know, the, the news of Angela Rayner's sacking uh, brought a huge backlash from all sides of the party. And so Andy Burnham, who uh, was re-elected as, the, uh, as the, the mayor of Greater Manchester, he tweeted out that he could not possibly support it. And he had already been presenting himself over the weekend as kind of the prince across the water, so that he said that if at some stage in the future that the party needed him, they knew where to find him, that kind of thing. And and so, uh, so all of this started to look suddenly very bad for um, for Keir Starmer, and he then uh, it was going. He had planned to reshuffle the cabinet on Monday. He brought that forward to Sunday, but he spent most of Sunday in negotiations with Angela Rayner to try to work out what job she would accept. 
and how it would be made clear that she was not, in fact, being made the fall guy for this. And so what Keir Starmer succeeded in doing was to turn what was really a setback in the election into a crisis for his leadership. And for the first time, I think even on Friday morning, very few people would have thought that uh, there was a question over the leadership of Keir Starmer. Whereas I think by now, uh, questions about his judgment have actually turned into questions about his leadership and whether this is a person who can successfully lead the party into the next general election. He finally, on Sunday night, late on Sunday night, just at five minutes before deadline, really, for most newspaper journalists, uh, he did announce uh, a reshuffle, which is more limited than expected. So Angela Rayner uh, has four titles now. She's uh, deputy leader. She's uh, shadow first secretary. Uh, she's shadow uh, of the Chancellor of the Duchy of, Le of Lancaster, so she shadows Michael Gove, and she's also shadow for the future of work, which is not actually a ministry that exists, but she's shadowing it nonetheless. Annalisa Dodds, who is uh, something of an ideological soulmate of Keir Starmer, and she was Chancellor of the Exchequer, but she was consistently regarded as having been a rather weak performer in the House of Commons. So she's been demoted and so she now uh, will be uh, party chair. And Rachel Reeves, who's from the right of the party, she's moving to become the new shadow chancellor. And a couple of other people from the right wing of the party, Wes Streeting, has also been brought into a position. And so the, the general thrust of this relatively modest reshuffle is a shift to the right. And I'll ask him perhaps about the whole positioning, the existential threat, which some people characterise that the Labour Party is facing. But just in terms of the the fumbling, which it seems to have taken place over the last couple of days by, by Keir Starmer, it's, it's sort of surprising, isn't it? Because the one thing that people were saying positively about Keir Starmer, in, often in comparison to his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, was that he was cautious, he was measured, he looked at all the angles before he made a decision and would put off making a decision for as long as possible. And is this instance, the timing seems key to me, as you've said, that you had these results coming out in drips and drabs, something we're more used to in Ireland than they are in the United Kingdom. But he jumped the gun too soon and he handled it very badly. And perhaps the, the strongest card that he had to play up until now, which was that he was, you know, professional and strategic and all those kinds of things, was undercut. Yeah, I think actually, even before that, there were signs that... Uh, in fact, his judgment wasn't the best. So some of the the major missteps, uh, say, in the Hartlepool by-election were actually his. So, for example, he chose to call the Hartlepool by-election on the same day as the other elections, at a time when the government was likely to benefit from this vaccine boost, where there was a very popular uh, mayor in the neighbouring Tees Valley, uh, who was a Conservative, who was possibly going to bring, uh, you know, help with the, his coattails to bring the Conservative candidate through. And he also imposed a candidate uh, without uh, a, a proper contest. So it was a short list of one. This candidate, Paul Williams, who had been an MP for a neighbouring constituency, lost his seat. And so not only was he a very ardent remainer in the town that voted more heavily Brexit than almost anywhere else in Britain, but he also had a record in Parliament of constantly voting to try to block Brexit from happening. So he, that was already, those were already a couple of missteps that were made uh, by Keir Starmer. But certainly in terms of this bungling, I think uh, one of the things that it has exposed is that the people around Keir Starmer, the people in the leader's office, they have a very tense relationship with a lot of the front bench. 
and they don't tend to communicate with MPs. Very few of his closest advisors are actually members of parliament. They're, they're outside advisors. Uh, you know, some are former MPs or whatever, but generally speaking, they're not actually part of the parliamentary party. And so it, it, the problem is not so much his personal relationships with people, and apparently his personal relationship with Angela Rayner, for example, is very good, but their two teams have an extremely tense and difficult relationship and have had for quite some time. So what, one of the things that she apparently wanted was to have a clear out of some of these people. And uh, he uh, is resisting that. And I think that, uh, you, know, it, you know, there were, again, sort of rival briefings on Sunday night as to who had won. So Angela Rayner's people initially started briefing out to suggest that she was actually in a stronger position now because she was really going to be running kind of everything to do with policy. And then Starmer's people sort of pushed back against that. And then eventually the Rayner people retreated and said, yeah, well, she's not exactly in charge of everything, but she's, you know, but still she has, you know, all of the, the scope that the deputy leader should have. So, so it's, you know, so, so it's, it still ends up being a bit of a mess. And those questions about Keir Starmer's qualities as a leader and about his judgment are certainly, uh, you know, hugely amplified. And I mean, you, you mentioned a, a shift to the right. I mean, there's always been a suspicion, hasn't there, on the on the left of the Labour Party that that Starmer is a sort of sleeper agent for a return of the Blairite third way. And uh, that might be bolstered to some extent by some of the changes he's made. Yeah, he got elected as uh, on a promise of unity, and he also presented himself very much as a candidate of the left. And he suggested that those policies, which uh, you know had been in the manifestos in twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen, that his policies were going to be based more or less on those. And there hasn't there haven't actually been any major policy changes, but uh, but of course he has split with the left, partly over sacking the candidate of the left for the leadership, Rebecca Long Bailey who, interestingly, uh, she was the flatmate in London of Angela Rayner. And Angela Rayner supported her in the leadership. But when Starmer sacked her because of uh, a dispute over a social media post, then Angela Rayner backed Starmer and stuck with the leadership, despite her long-standing friendship with Rebecca Long-Bailey. And also, of course, the expulsion or the suspension of uh, the whip for Jeremy Corbyn, because of the fact that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't apologise in a way that was acceptable to Keir Starmer. Uh, and to the party uh, leadership for uh, a, a Facebook posting to do with uh, the issue of anti-Semitism in the party. And so uh, so the the left of the party felt that with a number of these things that they were being frozen out, that in fact he wasn't attempting to unite the party. And so they did have the suspicion that you mentioned. But at the same time, what started to happen in the, uh, more recent months was you'd had these briefings from the left, but you then started to hear mutterings from the right of the party. And you'd hear from Labour MPs on the right where they'd say he's not moving fast enough. He's not, uh, he needs to really properly purge the left. I remember one uh, right-wing MP saying to me the, the Corbyn's problem was that he, was, he, was, he wasn't brutal enough with us. He didn't completely destroy us and we should do that to him and to his group. And, uh, and, so, and so there was some impatience that Starmer wasn't kind of pushing quite far enough. And when I interviewed Peter Mandelson before the Hartlepool by-election, he, of course, was the former MP for Hartlepool, he said that uh, he thought that a, a defeat in Hartlepool could be catalytic uh, for Keir Starmer and that it could galvanise the party into understanding that they had to move further and faster in terms of change than they thought they could. So this, by some on the right of the party, is seen as an opportunity to accelerate uh, what they regard as an important process, which includes not just a question 
question of policies. And in fact, in a way, it's less about policy than it is about things like party structures, about diminishing the influence of, say, the trade unions, about, uh, you know, and so essentially allowing the leader to have a bit more control over the direction of the party. So there are a lot of sort of internal structures and there's also complaints from within the party and especially again by these old professionals and veterans from the Blair years that the party uh, just doesn't work as an election machine as effectively as it ought to. And so uh, so you're going to have policy reviews because they have to suddenly start reacting to a Conservative Party that's willing to spend an awful lot of money and that is not afraid of debt. And uh, and so that is, you know, is and is also very, very willing to shovel money as part of its levelling up agenda to places that vote Conservative. And once again, when I was in Hartlepool, I would meet people who, who said, look at Ben Houchen, the mayor of Tees Valley. He's got a load of money. He's a Tory. I think if we get a Tory in here, we might start to get some funding coming up. And everything the government says and does suggests that that might actually be true. I mean, Ben Houchen is a fascinating figure, 34 years old, elected with a massive majority. I think he nearly got three quarters of the of the vote as, as, as mayor of Teesside. And in a way, he kind of exemplifies or typifies the, the challenge which Labour faces in these northern seats, doesn't he? I mean, I know it's a bit reductionist to say that it's as simple as the end of the blue wall and that's the, the end of the red wall and that's the challenge that faces Labour. But to an extent, it is these um, Labour strongholds white working class voters in the North and the northeast who Labour have lost and without whom they have no chance at all of ever becoming uh, the leading political force in the UK again. Yeah, I think there are a couple of different categories, though, within that group of voters. So, you know, that they talk about in the red wall or blue wall voters uh, who've gone off Labour. There's one group uh, who are who tend to be older and uh, you ask, the, uh, they tell you that they're, uh, you know, that they were lifelong Labour voters and that, uh, you know, but now they're voting Conservative. But then if you ask them who they voted for in the previous few elections, you'll find that they voted for the Brexit Party or for UKIP. And actually, you have to go back quite a long way before you find when they last voted for the Labour Party. So those people are very much Brexit voters and they're people who are, in a sense, culturally, they have moved away from the Labour Party. But then there's another category of voters in those parts of England who are aspirational, where they own their own home, they work in, say, middle management jobs in some of these sort of, you know, say in the Midlands, there's an awful, you know, there's a big logistics industry. And so these are working in kind of, you know, uh, the kinds of jobs that people in London don't necessarily know an awful lot about. But they actually can find that they have a nice house, with uh, a nice car and uh, a reasonably nice lifestyle, although their wages are not really very high by London standards. And those people obviously have different kinds of aspirations to what uh, some people in London might regard as a traditional working class sort of lifestyle. So they're obviously not organised anymore in the, you know, in the old industries, so they're more difficult to reach. And, you know, their kind of problems, like say problems of indebtedness, if they happen to have them, those are problems which tend to atomize. You don't, there's no solidarity among people who are in debt because people are in debt in different ways. And so all these kind of societal changes have helped to disconnect 
these people from traditional voter loyalties. And so I think that you will find that, you know, if Labour is to try to regain some ground in these seats, and again, if you talk to conservative strategists, they'll say the red wall is, or the blue wall is by no way solidly conservative. An awful lot of these were won by relatively small margins. And, uh, you know, and those people, it takes a long time to form a political attachment. And that, you know, if Labour had the right offer or if the Conservatives had the wrong one, then those people would uh, you know, would switch back. So, I th- But I think that latter group of uh, the aspirational homeowners in these parts of the North and the Midlands, uh, I think those are the people that probably Labour has a better chance of attracting back rather than these much older, culturally conservative voters. Because Indeed, of- although when it looks at fellow sister and brother social democratic parties across Europe who are faced with exactly the same problem, the, the omens are not great. No, but I th- again, though, uh, you have got different voting systems. I mean, the, you know, I think that, like, the, the, in a way, the best place to compare it to is the United States, where each party has to be a broad coalition. And so, obviously, the Labour Party is looking at the success of Joe Biden. And uh, but but if you look at what Joe Biden did, Joe Biden succeeded in building a coalition which included, uh, you know, supporters of Black Lives Matter. It included trans rights activists. It included all these people right over to trade unions and to, you know, to, uh, to older African Americans with conservative values. And so that, you know, plus elements of the white working class. And so I think that it's, you know, the difficulty is almost a mathematical one. So how do you uh, hold on to this coalition that you have and build it? And again, another problem for Keir Starmer is if you look at the elections in England, that the Greens did very well. And the Greens in, uh, in Britain are a left-wing party to the left of the Labour Party. And so an awful lot of young people say in a city like Bristol, the Greens emerged as the biggest party. And that is a city which is a young university left-wing city. And and these are younger left-wing Labour voters moving to the Greens. Just a last question on on, on this part of it. I mean, it it occurs to me, particularly because you mentioned the United States. I mean, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is not Donald Trump. He's nothing like Donald Trump. But some of the dynamics which you described there, including a celebrity candidate who notionally comes from an entirely different privileged world, which should be anathema to certain kinds of working class voters, but in fact is actually the opposite. And he is is quite an attractive and quite quite a liked figure. And in a way, one of the things about Keir Starmer's election by the Labour Party, it's it seems to me, was he was elected as the anti-Boris. And while it may be the case that Boris Johnson's loose relationship with the truth, his personal life and various other things might be anathema in Cambridge or Oxford or parts of London, it doesn't seem to be the case in other swathes of England. Boris Johnson is not... Donald Trump, but he's not unlike Donald Trump uh, in a way either. And so, and one of the similarities is that those people, so uh, the Conservative MPs, the Conservative Party's relationship with, with Boris Johnson is a transactional one. The MPs chose him not because they like him, trust him, or agree with him on anything in particular, but because they thought he was a vote winner. He's shown himself to be that once again uh, at the weekend. However, the problem is that if this election was, say, uh, happening last year, uh, you, uh, during the, that period of the coronavirus pandemic, the qualities that make uh, Boris Johnson popular today when he's got good news to talk about with the vaccine rollout were the precise qualities that made him very, very unpopular last year. And so circumstances and events uh, 
can uh, you know, can play to his advantage or to his disadvantage. And there are many, many weaknesses in Boris Johnson as the leader of a government. And he's and you know, and he's shown those. So in a sense, it's not that uh, you know, uh, like this guy is very good at winning elections, but he's not necessarily invincible. And his management of Downing Street, of his own government, has been pretty woeful most of the time. His management of the coronavirus pandemic was, for the most part, terrible. It's, you know, in terms of the number of people who died, in terms of the damage to the economy. But, you know, he has, uh, you know, partly through decisions he made himself, uh, for which he ought to get the credit, Britain has had a very successful vaccine rollout. And so people are feeling pretty good. But that vaccine rollout has also, if you look at it, benefited incumbents elsewhere in Britain, in Scotland and in Wales. Yes, and let's let's turn to Scotland. Uh, a very good result for the Scottish Nationalist Party, perhaps not quite as good as some hoped at the upper end, the, the, the idea that they might get an overall majority in the parliament in their own right. They didn't quite reach it. Really difficult to achieve that under the Scottish system of, of proportional representation. But there is a clear majority for pro-independence parties when you add in the Green Party. Yeah, and uh, it's a parliamentary system, and so there is a very clear majority in the Scottish Parliament for independence and for calling a second referendum. And in identical terms, the uh, the SNP and the Greens promised in their manifestos that they would uh, legislate for an independence referendum within the next five years, within this current term of Parliament. And so, uh, in a way, unionists have been pushing this idea that if Nicola Sturgeon didn't succeed in getting an overall majority, that somehow the mandate for a referendum would be weakened. Uh, I think it would certainly have been strengthened if she had uh, got that one seat more than she did. But it really doesn't make much difference once uh, you know once the once the par- Scottish Parliament does legislate for this, which is not going to do right away because she's made clear that the current focus is going to be on the coronavirus recovery, and so it's certainly not going to be this year. It's almost certainly not going to be next year, but it might be in 2023, and that uh, and so that's the, the kind of timescale you might be looking at. And th- but then once Scotland does that, then you are set up for a confrontation with London. Boris Johnson used to, until this weekend, say, there's no question, I'm just going to say no. And, uh, you know, the, you know that uh, the last referendum in 2014 was supposed to be once in a generation. And maybe the right time to wait is the gap between the first British referendum on EU membership in 1975 and the one in 2016. So that'll be 41 years. So anyway, they've changed their tune now. And so the current line uh, from the government is now is not the time. And uh, they don't uh, anymore just completely rule it out. But they, what they want to do is just say, well, let's, you know, we need to just talk about other things. And in the meantime, try to push the advantages of the union through the Internal Market Act. They can fund projects uh, in Scotland and in Wales, bypassing the devolved administrations. And they're going to try to do this and they will badge all of those as UK government projects and try to, in a way, to get through to uh, the Scottish voter that uh, you know the union and the government in Westminster is responsible for an awful lot of the good things that happen there and not only for the bad things. What is the strategic thinking on the part of the SNP, do you think? I, I, I mean, it's 50-50 in the opinion polls right now. Uh, does it make sense for them to wait and see for a while? And perhaps, you know, a lot of people think their best weapon is Boris Johnson. And indeed, some of those conflicts with stick and union jacks on things in Scotland might, if anything, increase the, you know, increase the, the, the pro-independent sentiment. 
Yeah, I think that uh, I think they, that the S and P needs time for a couple of reasons. First is most people in Scotland don't think that now is the right time to have a referendum because they just need to focus on this coronavirus recovery. And I think also there are a lot of questions that the SNP have to answer. Before the 2014 election, they had a, a very substantial white paper where they went through uh, most of the difficult questions about Scottish independence. They gave answers which were either satisfactory or unsatisfactory, depending on your point of view. But since Brexit, there's a whole new set of questions to do with Scotland's membership of the European Union, which is an aspiration, and uh, and what impact that would have with relationship with the remainder of the United Kingdom uh, following independence, how they would work the border between uh, Scotland and England, uh, you know, if they can remain part of the common travel area with uh, you know Ireland and the rest of Britain. You know, all of these questions, what currency they would use. Uh, so, for example, the current thinking is that they would continue to use the pound for a while, and then they would eventually get a Scottish currency. Currency, and then uh, once you join the European Union, you have to aspire to being a part of the euro. But there's no real hurry about that. But then, on the other hand, the European Union might not wish to allow uh, a member state to use the currency of a non-member state. The current, the the countries that currently don't use the euro, who are in the European Union, they're using their own currencies, and uh, and so insofar as their currencies are pegged to anything, they're either free floating or they're pegged to the euro. And so the idea that somehow another country, a rival country like the United Kingdom, could have uh, some, uh, you know, such a large influence on the monetary policy of an EU member state, that might be a problem. So there are all these questions which are complicated, and the SNP really needs to work out where they're going on that. They also need to work out, for example, what kind of member of the European Union do they want to be? Do they want to be like Ireland, a small country that's at the heart of everything, that's, that made a, a strategic decision to get into the centre of everything on the calculation that for a big country, you can be either in the centre or at the periphery, but for a small country, you really only benefit if you're at the centre? Or do you want to be like Sweden, which is a bit more distant, so it's not in the euro. It's uh, you know, it's, it's not quite as opted out as Denmark, but it's still it, it, it's, a, it's a more distant relationship and a more freelance relationship in a way than, uh, than than Ireland has. So those are all questions I think that the SNP has to come up with really pretty solid answers to. And at the same time, they need to build support. And uh, as you say, Boris Johnson can be a major help to them there because a lot of the stuff culturally that he will be doing to appeal to those blue wall, red wall voters in England are the kind of things that are going to uh, be off-putting to voters in Scotland and because they are to do with, uh, say, uh, you know, banning the decolonization of the curriculum and, you know, uh, and talking up the uh, the advantages of Britain's uh, imperial past, all of this stuff. So, so I think that, uh, you know, th there are lots of things that he can do which will make life easier for the SNP. But, uh, but either way, Nicola Sturgeon needs a bit of time. And do you think, just the last question, um, there was a lot of talk before the election that some of this stuff might end up in the courts, that there are kind of key constitutional issues, you know, which really revolve around, I suppose, you know, what is the basis for the Act of Union and uh, and by and, and for the constituent nations of the United Kingdom to stay or to leave within it? What is the actual law? Uh, can the Prime Minister at Westminster just refuse to have a, have a referendum? Those questions haven't gone away. Have they maybe got a little bit less immediate 
because of the shift by Boris Johnson this weekend? Not really, because I think that, you know, like in a way, his shift is a rhetorical shift. The fact is that he doesn't want to have a referendum, partly because he knows there's a risk that he'll lose it. And if he loses it, lose it, it's the end of him as prime minister. And it's also, that's the first line in his uh, obituary, uh, you know, rather like David Cameron. So in the sense, you know, he will have been the prime minister that lost Scotland. So he uh, has no... Uh, desire at all to give in to this. And the position, according to the law, is, according to the Scotland Act, which is the the devolution settlement, that questions about uh, the Constitution are reserved to Westminster. So, in other words, only Westminster can give its, you know, can consent to this. Now, what they did last time was that they, uh, they handed over that uh, power of consent to the Scottish Parliament temporarily to call the referendum. Now, he's obviously not inclined to do this. And the question then in the courts would be uh, if uh, you know, if that is the only interpretation of things, if this is in fact making it coercive, if it's actually out of the spirit of the uh, the Act of Union, which was supposed to be, although it was pre-democratic, it was supposed to be a union by consent, and uh, you know, and so if this is a union enforced by law, is that actually still the same union? And then there's a further question uh, that the Gina Miller case uh, brought up, which was that uh, referendums. Are in Britain are non-binding, and so uh, that perhaps the uh, United Kingdom government can't stop it because it's actually not it doesn't have the constitutional impact that uh, you know th- that they think it has. But of course, the problem if you is if you have a non-binding referendum, then all the unionist voters can just boycott it, and it becomes like that forgotten border poll in Northern Ireland where uh, I think it was the Nationalists boycotted. Anyway, somebody boycotted it, and everybody's forgotten about it. <laughs> I said that was my last question, but this is actually my last question. Is in the the remarkable PG Woodhouse esque narrative, which is the political career of Boris Johnson, where he said with one bound yet again he's free from the kind of disaster, which as you said earlier he he was largely responsible for last year. Is this a sort of a high moment for him now? He is his great majority. He's you know he's established his his blue wall better. They're coming out of uh, coming triumphantly out of COVID with the vaccine ahead of most other countries. Can it only be downhill from here? I suppose is what I'm asking. I think so. I mean, I think if you just think about people's lives and just the and the emergence from the the, uh, the coronavirus, you know, next week uh, we're going to have indoor hospitality. And we'll all go mad again, like we did when we started to have outdoor hospitality. And then uh, sometime during the summer, uh, people will be able to have their summer holidays. But then uh, once you get into the autumn, the furlough scheme stops. An awful lot of supports for businesses stop. Uh, Also, the ice thaws and you see what the wreckage of the pandemic has been economically. The government might have to make a few uh, unpopular decisions about spending. And uh, and so I think, it, you know, this is probably about the, at the height of his political fortunes. But the fact that he has uh, demonstrated to his own MPs that he is an election winner means that they're going to forgive him for an awful lot. So, for example, when Dominic Cummings comes up before a, a parliamentary committee on the 26th of May and starts spilling the beans about how terribly Boris handled the uh, the pandemic, uh, I think the MPs are going to just shrug it off and say, you know, the people aren't interested in this kind of stuff and you're just bitter and, you know, Boris is a great uh, leader and leave him there for a bit longer. Spend as much money as on the wallpaper in the flat as you want. 
<laughs> Dennis, thanks very much as always for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Condon. Uh, we'll be back very soon, but remember you can mail us with your thoughts at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much for listening. 